It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us be glad and rejoice in it. Welcome to this episode of the USCOC On Air. This is a public outreach for the U.S. Conference of Chaplains, our live internet radio program and podcast. The website is uscoc.org. Our aim is to provide an opportunity to help strengthen your personal ministry as well as the conference through training, networking, interviews, and interactions surrounding chaplaincy. It will be based on what we do and don't do as Christian chaplains and chaplain assistants, clergy and laity. We will discuss with you and we will pray for you. We will advocate for getting back to the basics in Christendom, but we will not bash any other intentional faith community in order to do it. We don't proselytize. We have varied from our starting format of our original six training episodes on TalkShoe, and in the past year or so, we've recorded many conversations with leaders in ministry, entertainment, and sports. With this episode, we continued the interviews, hoping to help foster the premise that everyone has a ministry. Uh, you've probably heard a lot, chaplaincy is a ministry of presence, so here we are, and as I'm fond of saying, chaplaincy equals availability. I'm your host, Chief Chaplain Alex Brandon, and we're honored to have as our guest on today's episode, by the way, this is being recorded live on June 16, 2020. The Reverend Dr. J. Herbert Nelson II, who is the stated clerk of the General Assembly for Presbyterian Church USA. Thank you for being with us today, sir. We really appreciate it. Chaplain Brown, thank you for having me. Um, I, I know that Presbyterian ministry is in your DNA, so to speak, and I'm not going to give everything away in this first question. I'll, I'll let you give it away in your answer. But uh, if you could, for folks that uh, your personal story is very interesting, if you could give a, a just a brief thumbnail of, uh, you know, your your life, education, career, and ministry, and how you got to the top of the uh, food chain in the Presbyterian Church, that would be I think beneficial for everybody. Well, first of all, uh, I am a third generation Presbyterian pastor. Uh, my grandfather, my father, uh, four uncles were Presbyterian pastors and one actually uh, led a um, Presbyterian parochial and boarding school. And he was the principal uh, at that particular school. Uh, so I come from a uh, strong Presbyterian family uh, with regards to uh, the teachings of the Presbyterian Church and the ongoing work uh, that the denomination has done. And um, that is a part of my basic background, uh, graduate of uh, Johnson C. Smith University in Charlotte, North Carolina, um, and also um, a graduate of uh, the Interdenominational Theological Center, Johnson C. Smith, uh, seminary in Atlanta, Georgia, um, where I got my master's degree and um, the doctor of ministry degree from Louisville Presbyterian 
uh, theological seminary. So throughout my uh, life and, and ministry, uh, uh, I've always been deeply connected to the Presbyterian Church, but uh, also an ecumenist at heart. And you were um, elevated to stated clerk in, was it 2016, am I correct? I think you're right. It's been four years, <laughs> actually. Okay. Um, and yeah, it's, um, I was, and uh, first African-American to serve uh, in this particular capacity in the life of the denomination. Uh, and before that, uh, I was the leader of the Presbyterian Church USA uh, Office of Public Witness in Washington, D.C. And uh, my next move after, before that was actually having two pastorates, one in uh, Memphis, Tennessee, uh, uh, Liberation Community Presbyterian Church, and the other being um, in uh, Greensboro, North Carolina, St. James Presbyterian Church. And does stated clerk have a fixed term to it? Um, is there a, a re-election possible in that in that spot? It is. I'm uh, coming up for re-election now. It's actually a four-year term, um, and so I'm seeking a second four-year term uh, at our general assembly, which will actually be taking place next week. I was going to ask if that was happening right now. Generally, this is the time of year that it occurs, and I know that you're doing it uh, via Internet this year uh, as opposed to an in-person uh, convention or, or uh, meeting space. So I would imagine there's been a ton of planning so that it doesn't get chopped up into little pieces, so to speak, uh, because you have over a thousand people, I would imagine, at your general assembly. How is that uh, happening for you? How's that working out? Well, we have been uh, struggling, I think, uh, for quite a while in uh, how we were going to make this possible. We were mandated, actually, by the general assembly. Um, this has been an ongoing mandate over the years that we had to have a general assembly, and. Um, we uh, did not have any uh, understanding as we started uh, putting this together back in uh, the fall of last year. Well, I should say actually uh, two years ago when we started. We uh, actually meet every two years. Uh, there was no indication that we would be in the midst of a pandemic um, and certainly um, no uh, understanding that we would be in the midst of the unrest that we see here in the United States right now in our own streets. Uh, with regards to the issues of race and police killings of African-Americans. Um, this, so we have, uh, it's been a tough one in, in the sense that we have been the, um, I would say the uh, a more traditional type of uh, General Assembly is what we've usually had, which was to have a hotel, uh, I should say several hotels in a city uh, that we would occupy. And then at the same time, we'd have a convention center. Well, in Baltimore, where we were to have had the General Assembly, uh, we got word in uh, May, near the end of May, that uh, the convention center had been turned into an addition to a hospital. Um, and persons who were dealing with the COVID virus were actually um, going to that hospital. And uh, 
so that took our ability to have anything in a um, in a, in the convention center itself. And then hotels became hospital beds, um, an extension of what was going on there as well. So um, we have really had to move very sharply into how to utilize the, uh, the uh, basic apparatus of social media and other kinds of ways of mode, one, communicating with individuals within our own ranks. And I think secondly, putting on a journal assembly that is not the traditional journal assembly. We're doing everything live stream this year. Um, and uh, that seems to be coming along very, very well. Uh, we've had some people within the denomination who have some significant capabilities in being able to deal with electronic media. Uh, but the other side of that, uh, being a person out of another school of thought, uh, I didn't grow up around computers. I actually had to live in and learn how <laughs> at a uh, more mature age. Um, we never know until we have the, uh, until we push the button or until we end the assembly. And uh, the realities of that is that we are going into a new experience. Um, and I think it's good and healthy for us on one level and that it allows us to uh, at least get ahead of the curve to some degree in terms of uh, denominational connections to how this can be utilized in so many different ways, the internet. Um, uh, and, and the other part of it, I think, is uh, significant. Uh, I was in a meeting with the National Council of Churches not long ago, and the leader of that organization uh, serves as chair of the board. Um, was saying to me as I was leaving the meeting, he said, Jay Herbert, we're going to be watching you um, and watching the Presbyterians to see how you all do your work. Uh, make sure you do it right. Um, and I think that symbolizes some of just being out in front right now, not because we chose to be, but because we had to. Uh, and yet we're living into something that um, is an experiment in many ways for denominations and uh, other groups as well to see how you can do a big box assembly without the big box. Um, and that's one of the challenges I think right now that we're facing um, is the unknown element of that right now, and particularly as we do that over several days. But you had a head start because you were already planning for working towards that direction in meetings anyway, uh, via electronic means or, or, or internet or or whatever that was something that was already on your on your horizon it you you were probably uh, down the road quite a ways to it when you found out you were going to have to do that this year anyway no matter what well yeah uh we did we were i mean it's not like it's the first time we've had to use it but there are some intricacies um and a need for some additional expertise uh, to be able to uh, carry on this kind of, and again, big box. We're talking about um, what would normally have been had we done an assembly, um, well over four or 5,000 people who would have been there, uh, which doesn't seem like a large crowd, but um, actually uh, it is when you have to feed people, when you have to do a number of things that, um, uh, that we have become accustomed to uh, at these journal assemblies because they're meeting, they're meeting areas as well, which means that there are people who are literally coming there to see their seminary classmates. They are not necessarily commissioners or not taking care of business uh, or to have a break or respite from their congregations. Um, 
that's different in, in this particular environment. And we've gotten some hard hits on that, um, although we had no other way of doing it and making a transition uh, internally because it has a long-standing history of being in a relationship uh, as, as a relationship builder for the denomination, uh, we are losing, in a sense, the ability to do that kind of in personal capacity of relationship building that we've been accustomed to. Um, and I think that is probably, when I, when I think about the church transition and change, um, it's not so much the mechanics of change uh, as much as it is how people receive it and how we actually uh, become uh, promoters of what this can be for the benefits, not just now, but in the future. And so I think that's been some of the challenge when you are uh, three months out, or actually two months out from um, uh, a general assembly, and you're changing the whole paradigm. Uh, and uh, folks don't know what this is. They don't know how they're going to be recognized on the floor of a general assembly meeting. Uh, there's no uh, capacity outside of uh, being in your own home to get up and utilize some of the facilities in, in the room. Um, mm -hmm. And it's just not those places where you do breaks and say, everybody take a break now. Um, I mean, people will be walking in and out because we don't have uh, some of the ways of, of gauging where folks are in, in the process because we won't see them. And so mm -hmm. this is a, a major turn for us. And um, I think one that is a challenge for uh, much of what we are going to be facing throughout the 21st century. I don't think this is the challenge, but I think it's going to be just one of many. Yeah, I agree with you. And I think that um, part of this whole uh, pandemic, I mean, I've been having meetings on Zoom like crazy. I never knew what Zoom was until a few months ago, for crying out loud. But um, um, I think that there are a certain amount of things that, uh, routine business, you know, uh, uh, meetings where you don't have to get on an airplane and, and get face to face with somebody necessarily. And then, but things like a general assembly, your annual convention, uh, the type of thing that you're talking about, ideally would occur face to face and in person. Uh, but I think that this will change um, some dynamics and some finances and things going forward. There will be people who will be able to attend. Uh, electronically that might not have been able to afford the travel, for instance. Uh, and so uh, this is going to be something going forward that we'll be able to take advantage of, uh, but it's never going to replace necessarily uh, some of the things that we, we need to do uh, church-wise, that's for sure. And that applies to other uh, areas in our lives too, not just, not just church. Um, you mentioned of the unrest in our in our cities uh, and so I was going to ask you to the extent that you were comfortable speaking about it uh, about Presbyterian Church USA's uh, kind of uh, leaning forward if you will on uh, social issues and and their their activeness in uh, those types of things maybe you could speak for a minute uh, to that issue for the church? Well, you know, the, the Presbyterian Church, and I think one of the things uh, that has been 
um, a significant piece for me and my formative years. Uh, my father uh, served as state conference president of the NAACP during the height of the 60s. Um, and I grew up in Orangeburg, South Carolina, where um, during my growing years, probably about eight, nine years old, um, there were students at South Carolina State uh, University who were um, uh, trying to uh, integrate Harry Floyd's bowling alley downtown Orangeburg. Um, and uh, 27 of them were shot in the back by highway patrol. And uh, Three of them were killed, Smith, Hammond, and Middleton. Um, and we, growing up, uh, my father in the midst of all of that, um, at that time was former um, State Conference President NAACP. And we moved to Orangeburg uh, because he wanted to be committed to the movement of a college and its work toward uh, some level of emancipation from segregation. And, um, in so doing, uh, all of this broke out. And it's, it's been something that I saw his role as a pastor uh, of a congregation, um, as a person who was uh, able to move a congregation and to get individuals in the life of that congregation to respond both to the piety of the gospel and also uh, the justice-related uh, elements of the gospel. And um, it, it really was out of that cultivation uh, of seeing him and other pastors who could not stay in hotels when they came because we were in a segregated society. So they uh, slept in our house. I shared a bed with, uh, when I say a bed, we had, had twin beds in my room and uh, there was always a, a bed there for someone else uh, to stay. And so a number of people came through who were part of movement work, who were part of justice work. And um you heard the stories the stories that i didn't think i was listening to but later on i remember um and all of that was a part of the dna of my spiritual life growing up so i, I saw my father's model i saw the model of other pastors and people connected to the church and the faith i was in rallies as a young kid and they would take me sometimes up to uh, as far as they could go. And when the police would start to approach, they would start passing me back. Um, um, so I guess by just that kind of training, some of which I don't even remember, but I have heard the stories, um, is, was an appropriation of the gospel message uh, to what it meant to live in a uh, society that was unjust. And to a large degree today still is unjust. We see that playing out now with these police shootings. We see that same thing taking place um, with regards to the issues of employment and jobs. And uh, these types of things, uh, I think, uh, are what is the driver for me. Um, I left a uh, uh, congregation in North Carolina that uh, was a jewel of a church with regards to a seminary and coming out and getting this particular congregation. Uh, and um, you just didn't get this congregation coming out of seminary. <laughs> um, and, and I think the other part of it was uh, leaving that same congregation 11 years later and then deciding to go into the ghetto of Memphis, Tennessee and spent 13 years there in ministry before even looking at anything else in national church work. Uh, and I felt a calling then to the Washington office, uh, which was the justice office of our denomination. Um, and then from there ended up as state of clerk of the denomination, the leader of our denomination. Um, 
And so the progression has always been grounded in the rights of people. It's always been grounded in what God says about love and justice and all of the things that are uh, fundamental to us learning how to treat each other and to be community. Uh, and that was how I learned the faith. Um, it was how I understood the faith. It was my daddy's preaching. It was my uncle's preaching. Um, it was hearing over and over uh, the chance of freedom. And we're still having to do that. And, and I think there's something in this period of history that the denomination and the spirit got together and came to some understanding that during this period, uh, I would be called here uh, because it wasn't something that I saw it, uh, in terms of uh, I dreamed and envisioned of ever being a state clerk. I never did. Um, but the reality is that God got in the mix and um, the denomination made some decisions uh, to take a person out of the justice office and with the justice background in this period of time. And I think more confirmation is being given now uh, that we're seeing what's happening in the streets of the United States and what's happening globally. Um, Black Lives Matters uh, being chanted in countries uh, that we didn't even know they knew anything about Black Lives Matters until now. And uh, watching right. white uh, women uh, and I should say girls, uh, who are young women, um, taking rubber bullets in the street along with African-Americans who are protesting. Uh, this is a phenomenal period of history right now that we are engaged. And I really feel that God placed me in this position at this time uh, because of the way by which God's story in my life has actually evolved. And, um, and, and it's a story of faith. Convenience may have played a little part there. Um, speaking of words that start with tree, <laughs> how's that for a segue? Um, All right. One of the things uh, about the Presbyterian denomination that I've understood over the years, and I, I'm by no means uh, an expert on all denominations, um, but that Presbyterianism is as very Calvinistic and that uh, predestination has been part of uh, the church's theology. Um, is that indeed the case? Would you, would you agree with that statement or would you choose to modify it a little bit? I would modify it. I think that um, probably fundamentally that's where we started out um, and that was a huge part. Uh, and I think a lot of it uh, had to do with the um, understanding to some degree what uh, happened out of an involvement in a relationship with Christ uh, and how does that relationship actually shape and form itself over a period of time. And the predestination, um, in a sense, is not so much uh, tagged just to Presbyterians, but uh, very much heavily in, in Calvinist thinking and some of the other ways by which we appropriated theology. Um, I think we moved in a very different direction, and I think context does that. Uh, we're no longer in a period of debating uh, the righteousness of the church with regards to uh, a fight between Catholicism and Protestantism anymore. Um, we are looking at the very thing we just finished, uh, uh, I just finished sharing, and that is how is the church actively engaged with regards to a theology that embraces all communities 
and even those who have uh, disregard or even little regard for the life of the church itself, that we still have a responsibility to make some deep connections. And I think that comes out of a maturity of our thinking as Presbyterians in this current day. We've always been, or at least I should say the United Presbyterian Church, which I came up in, which now is a part of, uh, and continue, we merged and then we split again. Not the United Presbyterian, but the Southern Northern struggle in the life of our denomination brought about some uh, splits. And uh, mm -hmm. I think we are recapturing the justice aspect of the Reformation. Uh, that we have some responsibilities to love our neighbor very deeply uh, and to be able to come to their aid in times of trouble and that there is a foremost focus on how we transform people's lives that they might become disciples, not just people who are pious. Um, and so um, there's a lot of effort of that and a lot of connections and even uh, within our own ranks. Uh, we are struggling with what it means when we look at the issues of um, uh, the racial strife that we see now in our communities and the, shooting, the, uh, the shootings that are taking place by police. We're wrestling even with on our own ranks as Presbyterians. It's, have we gone deep enough? Um, and there are those who in the ranks continue to push back that no, we're not. And I think that's been the core of our current day uh, gospel uh, reading because we are seeing so many people uh, who are in dire straits that we can't escape from in the 21st century. Well, anybody who's uh, done any uh, reading or study uh, at all uh, is aware that Jesus' ministry was uh, one of inclusivity and that uh, he was uh, concerned very much with the the less thans, if you will. And so <clears throat> I don't know how uh, things get twisted around and, and uh, played for uh, a particular crowd or segment, but it, it does, and it's unfortunate. And, and uh, I appreciate very much the, some of the things that I've seen uh, very recently that uh, you have said and and some of the things that the denomination has put forth as positions on on uh, social issues and I, I think that that is part of our uh, responsibility uh, as part of the body of Christ so I agree with 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 you there's uh, something else people might not be aware of when you talked about some of the uh, the uh, merging and splitting and so on and so forth over the years. And um, I think when some folks think about uh, Presbyterianism, they don't necessarily think about women in ministry and, and uh, ordained mm -hmm. uh, uh, women. And uh, I think you may already be aware that in the U.S. Conference of Chaplains, we have, uh, we celebrate women in ministry and we have a, a woman of color on our, on our board of directors. Uh, Chaplain Cannon, and um, mm -hmm. so I, I, I don't know that people are surprised necessarily or not. It's been d decades that there have been uh, ordained women in Presbyterian uh, denominations. Absolutely, we were uh, we were among uh, the first uh, to uh, ordain women, 
and um, have uh, continuing today. Uh, I'm watching in many places where women are outnumbering men uh, with regards to calling uh, to our congregations. Uh, they're in our seminaries. Uh, women are doing chaplaincy work. Uh, and uh, women are taking on roles in ministry that um, one would think would be non-traditional with regards to uh, the work uh, of women but uh, in the church. But the reality is that we have affirmed for a very long time. In fact, uh, I feel quite blessed to have married uh, a clergy woman who is Presbyterian. <laughs> and, uh, that's, uh, and, and, and I think that is a part of what at one point was framed in our denomination as being uh, liberal. Um, because there was something different about it. Uh, it would seem to have been off the pale, especially when other denominations were not ordaining women. Um, and yet uh, the assets that I'm seeing in this current day uh, of women who are leaders, women who are strong pastors, women who are great pastoral caregivers, women who are advocates on the front line of justice work, uh, wearing uh, the badge of Presbyterianism and Jesus Christ on their lives. And I think all of that um, says something about uh, not only where we have been um, since the early, early 1960s uh, until now, um, the continuation of seeing uh, that a call is not limited to any group of people or any one person uh, or one type of person. And I think we have also, um, you know, just to take it a step further, we have been willing in this denomination, and it has cost a lot in terms of membership uh, over the years. In fact, it was a major part of some of the splitting of our denomination, but also the uh, ordination of uh, LGBT uh, communities and, and people who live in and are part of the LGBT community. Um, and we are framed in a sense of being liberal because of that, but I don't know that we are liberal. I, I think we are open, and I think we believe that God uh, is abundant enough, uh, focused enough, and also benevolent enough to be able to give uh, and offer the call to Jesus Christ in the world uh, to anyone who is willing uh, and who will stand fast in the liberty wherewith Christ Jesus has set them free. And I think that's the challenge of uh, why we can speak um, in a voice uh, that speaks to the contextual realities of our day, because those voices are not all the same. Right. And I, um, now see, that's something uh, I wasn't going to ask you a question in that area, but now that you brought it up, I, I, had a different slant in that uh, my understanding was that the the church had uh, uh, did not require but gave permission uh, I think was the way it was uh, uh, kind of officially worded and you are telling me that this is way past that that the you've gone many steps further than uh, just giving permission and I think you speak of the LGBT community? Yes, yes. Oh, yeah, we, we ordain. <laughs> we ordain uh, LGBTQ persons into ministry. Um, and they are fully ordained with all the rights and uh, privileges. Um, 
Yeah, and and again, it it cost us on one end um, with regards to the issue of membership numbers, but I'm convinced that what it did for us on the other end was that it strengthened our witness uh, in ways, quite frankly, that we would never have been able to do because we're capturing the essence of the diversity of the world. Uh, people are who they are, and we're accepting people where they are. Um, this does not mean that every church uh, will find their way there at the same time. But what we are and where we are now is that um, the veil has been lifted, where those congregations who uh, are prepared and ready and desirous of calling a pastor, no matter who that pastor may be or what their sexual orientation might be or their race, uh, we have broken down many of those barriers. Um, and so there are no excuses for congregations to say, uh, we can't do this. Yes, you can. And, and many of them are stepping up in this denomination saying, we just want a good pastor. We want someone who can do the work of faith. Um, and ordination is required uh, in our denomination. So as a result, uh, we have people who are ordained uh, as LGBTQ uh, uh, persons who connect with the LGBT community and are willing and ready to serve. Um, so yeah, I, I, I am very proud of that because it goes back to South Carolina, which I talked about earlier. I know what it meant to not be able to go on the other side of town. I know what it meant not to be able to shop downtown as a child because I was African-American. Uh, I was marginalized. And when I looked at the marginalization of other people, uh, I can identify with that. Because even in some instances, even being stated clerk of the Presbyterian Church, there's still some marginalization when people don't know uh, who that happens to be or who I am at a particular time. Um, I too have been stopped by police because of that. Um, and it, it, so all of these things are uh, a part of how do we open the church uh, to be a place for all people at every level uh, who want to serve. Jesus Christ, and I'm grateful that we've gotten beyond uh, the infighting and the struggling that we had to go through in order to make that happen. And yes, the loss of membership, but I think it's been well worth it because it's making us anew. Well, you know, in chaplaincy, you minister to all. Uh, yes. You don't come up on on the scene of a of a uh, automobile accident, or you don't get called uh, to the fairgrounds during a. a some type of natural disaster and uh, have a three-page form on a clipboard that you get filled out before you start talking to somebody or holding their hand or or doing whatever needs to be done. So <clears throat> so um, from the standpoint of uh, conference chaplains, uh, we, we always minister to everybody. Um, That's what makes you call. <laughs> yeah. One of the one of the things that uh, uh, I wanted to be sure to ask you before we get to the question that I ask every guest uh, is about we've already covered the General Assembly as being something that's very uh, uh, you know very much a priority right now, but I notice on your uh, website for uh, PCUSA there's a a uh, a push, it seems, for a program that you call the Church Financial Leadership Academy. Um, so since that's heavily advertised on the website, I wanted to ask you to just briefly 
maybe tell us why that is such a uh, priority for for you on your on your uh, internet presence and your your website right now and to what extent is that just inside Presbyterian Church or is that something that's been made available uh, to others as well for instance well I'm uh, not as familiar with that uh, as I probably should be it's, a, it's actually a part of one of our six agencies and it sounds more like it's coming either out of the foundation or either out of the um, uh, uh, the pension board, one or the other. I believe you. I believe you're right. I believe that's a foundation effort, primarily. Yeah. yeah. And 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 I think one of the things, and as as I think about the work that they do, um, they're components of um, a way of really doing the work of um, helping individuals do some of the things uh, in ministry that are a bit uncomfortable with regards to money. Um, how do we manage money in the life of a church? How do we manage money in the li in our own lives? Um, and how do we manage our assets um, with regards to the ongoing uh, uh, work that we are called to do? Um, I think what the I know that one of the things that actively our foundation is doing is continuing to try and educate people around how to handle money and it's not necessarily um, uh, handle it in terms of spending but handle it be, being good stewards and uh, some of that is how do you utilize money that you have that where you can help other people whether that be in the foundation or another entity but also how do you manage money so you can be in a position to help somebody and and also help yourself at the same time and so it's kind of a holistic approach uh, as I understand the ethos of what the foundation does across the board. It's not just a foundation to hold money, but it's a foundation that tries to teach individuals how to value money and to use it as a value for a greater good. And um, uh, that's something that our, our Board of Pensions folks could probably explain a lot better than I can. Uh, but what I can say is that I know that that's generally uh, what this organization has done as historically and is doing now. Well, again, timing uh, being very important uh, and a little convenience, again, perhaps, and, and with regards to this offering by the foundation, and that uh, uh, because I say that because right now in this particular time with physical attendance off in mm -hmm. churches, uh, tithes and offerings are also off, yeah, and so. Um, you know, uh, we're having to do as much uh, with less, and uh, although that's a temporary dip, uh, it's still something that has to be contended with. So the timing on on this offering uh, by the foundation is probably uh, uh, very much uh, on target and appreciated by a lot of people. Um, you know. You mentioned the uh, the the loss of membership, or I should say, uh, persons falling out, uh, church-wise and otherwise. Um, you know, it's been interesting to me. It's been a mixed bag for us. Um, this pandemic has brought some people back to church, um, yeah. and in some instances, um, you know, it has come in a different way and form than we would have expected. We actually have reports of some congregations whose uh, 
uh, tithes and offerings are actually uh, going up. And, um, and some of that, I think, has to do with the fact that I'm seeing a phenomena in the life of the denomination where the church is going out to people and not waiting for people to come to the building. Uh, and right. they're doing that through uh, Zoom and live stream and other kinds of things that are taking place. And so it, as the denomination, we had to change our rhythm very quickly, as, a, as did others. And um, I, I usually share with people a, a joke that um, within uh, one week, we probably uh, ended up with a couple thousand uh, um, television preachers. Uh, and it's because of Zoom and these other kinds of mediums that they're using. But what I think this pandemic has helped us do is to push us to figure out how to be church in the 21st century. Um, and how to minister to people who have need of the church in way and, and may not express them in the formality of church, but they will express them in the midst of their struggles. And how do we get to the greatest place of impact that the church can actually give in the 21st century? And that is to get to the depth of the struggles of God's people. And so I've seen it. Uh, I've seen pastors take on energy. Um, at the same time admitting that they're tired. <laughs> but they've taken on new energy in the sense that um, this has brought some creativity to our denomination that uh, has taken us away from the kind of staid, uh, we only sing it one way, we only do it one way in life of the church, to trying to be creative and trying to reach out beyond the boundaries and yet create an atmosphere of sacredness uh, amid our structured uh, uh, demise with regards to the dying all around us and, and the struggles we're going through. Um, this is, um, I, so I, I say that to just speak to a dynamic that I'm seeing happening uh, in the Presbyterian Church USA, and it may be happening in other places as well. Um, but I, I'm very clear that um, uh, this pandemic has been a struggle uh, but it has also been a time where we have uh, renewed our strength to do ministry. Yeah, I agree. Uh, and I, I think that was well put. And, you know, I mentioned earlier, I had never been on a Zoom meeting three months ago. Now I know about Skype and Duo on your phone and things like that. But I had not, I just hadn't been exposed to Zoom and now everybody's using it. Uh, I think you're going to be using mm -hmm. it for your General Assembly, if I'm not mistaken, as one of your components. Um, one of, yes, your, we are. one of your uh, arrows in your quiver, so to speak. <laughs> uh, the, the, the question I like to ask every guest, you know, Barbara Walters had her, uh, if you were a tree, what kind of tree would you be question. Um, I, I have updated that to a kind of a 2020 type question, and it, it's not that simple, but uh, it, it is in, a, in another vein, and that is, uh, some a friend, a friend, not just somebody, but a friend gets a text uh, from you, uh, but for some reason they're not entirely certain that it's you. Perhaps they think somebody may have gotten a hold of your phone or something, and so um, the the question is, what could they ask you that in the answer to that texted question? would convince them they were indeed uh, speaking with you? 
Oh, wow. Um, when was the last time that you ate chocolate cake? <laughs> Ed, would, the, would the answer to that be uh, Ed, like this morning? <laughs> Yesterday. <laughs> uh, so chocolate, chocolate cake is a staple in your diet. I I gather that. Yeah, I get weak. I get real weak. <laughs> uh, well, uh, Dr. Nelson, I want to thank you very, very much for your time, especially especially now when you're in the throes of uh, uh, planning your General Assembly and and uh, that involving uh, a personal effort for yourself, uh, uh, not only on behalf of the denomination, but uh, for the uh, Office of Stated Clerk. And uh, I just am, am very appreciative of the time on the phone today and what it took for us to get together and uh, for Brunhilde and Rick Jones and the people uh, that uh, uh, work with you. Uh, I'm just uh, uh, indebted to all of you, and I thank you very much for your time today, and I hope it's been uh, enjoyable for you and something that uh, uh, you thought was a, a good use of your time as well, sir. It has been, and I don't want to thank you very much. This has uh, been a good opportunity for me to also think through some things that uh, I probably had not uh, thought thought about recently anyway but uh, I want to thank you for this and, and for the for this podcast that you have I mean this is amazing and an amazing way to get uh, get the gospel out through the hearts of people and uh, it's really great and I, I'm glad to have been a part of this well we are glad that you are too and, and that you have been and the, the emphasis lately uh, has been an, an interfaith or intrafaith I should say more accurately uh, emphasis so that people learn a little bit more about uh, the other parts of the body of Christ. So uh, thank you again. And until next time, this is Chaplain Alex Brandon wishing you every blessing. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.